Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My producer, Tess, suggested we call this the Pot Power Hour, or maybe Marijuana Monday, because today we're talking about medical and recreational marijuana. Connecticut is the 19th state to legalize cannabis. Coming up, we hear from a researcher about the science of this plant and how it affects people, and we'll take your questions, too. First, before Connecticut lawmakers and the governor agreed to legalize recreational marijuana, a lot of attention was paid to making sure people who've been impacted by the criminalization of marijuana have a chance to get involved in the business of marijuana. After all, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's projected to be worth nearly $70 billion by the end of this decade. So who will benefit? Large companies from out of state or small business owners with ties to local communities. My guests today offer different perspectives on the legal cannabis rollout. First, I want to welcome a small business owner to the show. On Zoom today, Luis Vega, CEO of Wepa Farms. He's a licensed hemp farmer. Luis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. How are you? I'm doing well. You can also join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. So, Luis, tell us how long you've been growing marijuana as a licensed hemp farmer. Um, thank you for having us on today. So we joined the pilot program um, right at the inception of the hemp program. Uh, I was able to little background about me. I'm from New York uh, State, New York City originally, and then moved up here for college. Um, I got to attend the University of New Haven, then Bertus Magnus, and then I got to go to UConn. So up at UConn in the beginning of the hemp program, uh, before the hemp, as, as the hemp pilot program was starting, I got to work with a great group up at uh, the University of Connecticut on their hemp lot. From there, my continued interest grew in the cultivation side. And I entered the pilot program for the hemp through the Department of Agriculture. Um, I also uh, got a production license through the Consumer uh, Department of Consumer Protection. So we've been able to take part in the hemp program completely. Um, we grow uh, 10 acres here in the state. And then on top of that, we process that and then sell the product throughout the country. And then I'm, I'm Puerto Rican, so we actually work in Puerto Rico as well. Um, other than hemp and growing uh, hemp here in the in Connecticut, I'm also a licensed producer in the state of in in the island of Puerto Rico. So uh, I work with a great group out there called Canna Club. It's a high end cannabis lounge um, in Puerto Rico that's licensed through the state as well. You mentioned the Connecticut pilot. So this is fairly new, right? That that hemp was legal to grow in Connecticut starting in 2019. Correct. Yeah, it's, so, a, it's a new endeavor. Go ahead. It's a very new endeavor with the state. Um, throughout the country, there's been many different laws that regulate a certain area. 
And now as it came to the state, the the regulatory agencies were, did their due diligence and really made sure to dot their I's and cross their T's and make sure that whatever products come out of Connecticut are safe, efficient, have been tested, have gone through the regulatory process. And it's not something that you're you're just going to willy nilly jump at, you know, so we're, we're we are very happy for uh, the state being able to put those things out for us. You mentioned that you have 10 acres in Connecticut. So walk us through a, 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 a day that you would have on, on your farm and what that means in terms of your production. Um, the cycle of what our day looks like usually goes by as the season turns. In the beginning of the season, we spend a lot of our morning um, starting to propagate and start the next round of plants. So that was earlier in the season as we went April May, June, we were getting uh, small seedlings and started plants out into the fields. Uh, we do a crop rotation so that our fields continue to get enhanced by the hemp that we grow. We put it in rotation with other vegetables and fruits like strawberries, pumpkins, um, winter rye, wheat. So it's now become a part of our sustainable agriculture as well. Uh, I spend my mornings usually going through the plants, quality controlling everything, making sure the plants are going right along with the harvest plan that we put in place with the state. We make sure that we walk around, there's nothing, no no pests, rodents, mites, anything that's in our outdoor fields. So we really do take care of our outdoor fields really heavily. And um, that would be just the beginning portion of our day. Then I shoot over to the lab. Um, I check on our staff that usually is taking our raw product uh, which has already been tested by the state compliant labs. We've already gotten our permission from the Department of Agriculture to move it over to the next portion. And then we move into our lab portion where we do our production of the raw product. So we take our raw product and actually add a value to it by by processing it up to a uh, retail wholesale ready product. And when I mentioned the 10 acres, so how many plants do you have? And, and describe your relationship with them. I hear you talk to your plants. <laughs> um, we'll call it Marijuana Monday or the podcast. <laughs> um, I am I am completely guilty of walking through my fields. We have about 10,000 plants. Um, on a 10-acre spread, it's about 1,000 plants. We give about 15 feet in between plants. So that's a lot of space. Um, on any given acre, you could have up to 2,500 plants. Um, the plants don't grow huge. They're probably about four or five feet, about two feet across with a lot of airspace around them. So it gives me time to walk through with my headphones as I'm singing songs and, I, and I'm talking and I'm like, wow, you look beautiful. Wow, you really grew a little bit today. And you just keep starting to, you start to learn your rows and you start to learn which plants are doing what. We grow four varieties that we uh, procured from Oregon CBD on the West Coast. So those strains grow absolutely awesome over here. We have a very high CBG dominant plant called uh, stem cell. And that's one of the more CBG strong. Uh, uh, the cannabis plants has, has many different cannabinoids that are able to be isolated out or ran or tested. And we have now taken to using cultivars that are high in certain cannabinoids. So we grow a marijuana plant that's below the 0.03 limit for, um, we grow under the, uh, the 0.03 limit to keep it as a legal hemp product to stay compliant with the state regulatory agents. But with that, we're able to 
choose cultivars that have a higher cannabinoid such as CBD or CBG um, or CBN. And all of these things are currently being tested out and finding the different effects that go along with them. So as we get to get in these cultivars that have uh, specific targeted cannabinoids, we can find out which plants. So if I'm walking through and I have the Hawaiian haze, which is high in CBN, we start saying, hey, how's it going? These plants become part of your daily life. It's something that you know will become something that somebody else is going to enjoy at some point. So having a personal relationship with plants is may sound weird to, to the average Joe out there, but if you grow tomatoes and talk to your tomatoes, you enjoy it. If you grow, if you have a tree and you talk to your tree every day, you can completely relate. Well, Louisa, I, I am also a gardener and I talk to my plants, so I totally get you. I get where you're coming from. You're hearing on Zoom, Luis Vega, again, CEO of Wepa Farms. He's a licensed hemp farmer. As we talk about marijuana today in our state, we know medical marijuana uh, they was legalized back in uh, 2012, and now recreational marijuana is permitted in our state. We're going to learn more about the rollout uh, coming up, but if you have a question, 888-720-9677, that's 888- 720 WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Luis, before uh, Connecticut legalized recreational marijuana, you talked a lot about there are certain um, rules that you have to follow uh, growing hemp. And so, how will the change in our laws impact your farming? Um, it doesn't necessarily impact me very much. Um, as much as we we appreciate everything that the Department of Consumer Protection has done. Uh, there still isn't a clear pathway. <coughs> Pardon me, I get a little parched talking so much. Um, the the uh, there's no clear pathway for hemp farmers to move into the the adult use or medicinal realm currently. Um, I'm Latino. I don't come from uh, I don't come from money. I am an average Joe. I'm gentleman who I who didn't I, I my parents were poor and we really come down to it my parents did what they had to to make sure that they can survive I was able to go to college and then on top of that I have Crohn's disease so I have no large intestine they removed my entire large intestine I had an ostomy bag for a while so if, uh, if, if you don't know what an ostomy bag that's actually a uh, it's a medical device that's used to keep your digestive tract going um, through your belly ultimately so with Crohn's disease, I suffer many flare-ups. I have a augmented day-to-day life, one might say, uh, heavy diet that I have to maintain just so that I'm not killed over in pain at any given moment. And with that, I am a medical marijuana patient as well. Um, what I call it is in my prior life, I was a director of dining services. I actually managed a large uh, corporate dining service facility, 150 union employees, um, high stress environment. So that wasn't conducive to living a very healthy life. The Department of Department of Protection and the medical marijuana, medical marijuana program here in the state allows us to participate in the marijuana program. And it has helped uh, my quality of life immensely, has lowered inflammation. And this is things that is done for me. Now with the medical marijuana program being successful in, in certain ways, um, moving into the adult use program, 
I'm not able to participate just yet. Um, so as we're setting everything out, I'm looking to participate and I'm very excited to participate and I will be rolling the dice on a lottery if I could participate. Um, so I, I meet all the criterias. I'm from the designated area and I really worked my tail off to be able to participate in this and it's still a roll of the dice. Um, Luis, we're going to so, be talking to the Department of Consumer Protection in just a couple of minutes. But you know, I wanted to ask you uh, what this means for you personally, you know, as a Latino farmer in an industry around a plant that was criminalized and sent many people of color to prison. What does this mean for you uh, to be farming and, uh, you know, being involved in this industry, uh, given what we've seen in this country a, with the history of marijuana? So it's a dream come true, in all honesty, and I believe that it comes full circle. Because as we talk about, as you clearly stated, the war on drugs and the war on cannabis was something that was highly racially driven. And the word marijuana, marijuana, was made a derogatory word solely based on the Latino culture that our word for this plant is marijuana. So now as we look back to the reefer madness days, the Harry Anslinger days and continued drug war, we'll see the spelling change from marijuana to marijuana. So that term itself is a derogatory term towards Latinos and cannabis. So you'll see a lot of people interchange all of the words. But ultimately, this war was started on our people, nosotros gente. You know, so it, it's a full circle personal fight for myself as well. I was also arrested for cultivating cannabis. You know what I mean? So this is a big thing for me where taking part in this industry would go full circle. I've worked my, my backside off and I've sacrificed. I've worked 24 hour days. Being able to work in this industry has been my dream. And I'm really looking forward to moving forward to the adult use program. As a, hemp, as a licensed hemp farmer, I have all the same equipment. I go through all the same rigorous testing. We use the same exact labs. I've been an intimate partner with all of the agencies and to still leave that on a roll of a dice is pretty rough. I'm not looking for anything free. I'm not looking for anything extra. I'm just looking for a way to get in. Coming up after the break here on Where We Live, we're going to hear from Andrea Comer, Interim Deputy Commissioner at the Department of Consumer Protection. She's also Chair of Connecticut's Social Equity Council. We'll talk more with Luis and hear from Andrea about this process for people, especially in minority communities, uh, to get a social equity license, to be able to be involved in this recreational adult use uh, system that's in place right now. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. Seven. That's 888-720-WMPR. We'll be back after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. You've been hearing Luis Vega here on Where We Live. He's the CEO of Wepa Farms, and he's a licensed hemp farmer in our state. Uh, joining us now on Zoom, Andrea Comer, Interim Deputy Commissioner at the Department of Consumer Protection, and, he's ch- and she's chair of the newly formed Social Equity Council here in our state. Andrea, welcome. Lucy, good morning. Thank you for having me. And our listeners can also join if you have questions about how the state will distribute licenses for adult use recreational marijuana. Again, that number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Andrea, how do you respond to, to Luis's uh, story and what he shared about you know rolling the dice uh, for him to be able, him and others, to be able to be involved in this adult use market? Yeah, so first I want to just applaud Luis for all the hard work and all of the efforts that he's put into growing this business. Want him to know that, you know, we see we see you and we see all of the struggles and the blood, sweat and tears that went into your business in terms of someone like Luis. That's exactly the type of social equity applicant we're looking for. And I understand that the lottery process can be frustrating. But there's also, and no no process is perfect, right? But we also want to make sure that it is not being dominated by, by the big businesses. We hear that as well. People concerned that it'll just be the big businesses that get in and the, the startup entrepreneur may not have any have the same opportunity. And that's why we created the lottery system. And I know it's, again, not, not a perfect process and that, but but we're also trying to do the best we can to ensure that that equity is part of this process. So the council's form was formed as part of this legalization bill that passed the General Assembly and, and signed by the governor. I know late last week, uh, the council selected the Connecticut communities that will get marijuana license preferences. So tell us how you came up with that list. Sure. So they're it, they're called disproportionately impacted areas, and it really was sort of a geo mapping. Um, it was based on the unemployment rate as well as the number of drug convictions. And so, as you might expect, there were areas like Hartford and and New Britain, Waterbury, Bridgeport, but there were also areas like Morris and Beacon Falls where you may not have expected to see um, the, the that end up on those census tracts ending up on the on the list. 
And when we talk about the census tract, so what does that mean? So when we think about how many licenses uh, the Department of Consumer Protection will allow, um, how many of them will go to these applicants in these particular tracks? So half of every license type will be reserved for social equity applicants. So if you have 12 applicants for, let's say, a cultivator, then you must have six social equity applicants for a cultivator license. And so uh, now what happens in terms of the council's work? So you've identified these uh, tracks and a lot of people have questions. People like Luis already in um, the the hemp uh, business and want to be able to be in the adult use market. And so can you walk us through some of uh, the the things that the council has to get done and the timeline that you have to do it, Andrea? Yes. So the timeline is particularly um ambitious and aggressive, but we are determined to um, get the process done, but also be mindful of the process because the equity aspect of it really is top of mind for us. So the first thing is to, we have, we will develop an RFP for a social equity study, really to look at the the criminalization and the impact it has had on these communities. Um, that, that RFP for that study will then inform how we create the the requirements for for a license application. And uh, given the timeline, um, when we when the law was passed uh, by uh, state lawmakers and signed uh, by the governor, so what does that mean? Like, how soon could people be able to have a license to start cultivating and also selling in our state? So we are hoping that by sometime next year. Um, folks will be able to begin begin selling um, cannabis recreationally. Um, it will again. It's a it's a very aggressive and tight timeline. Um, the identification of the disproportionately impacted areas has taken place. The establishment of the RFP um, criteria for the equity study um, will happen sometime in September. And then we have to determine the documentation requirements to qualify as a social equity applicant um, and then propose a budget through the Office of Policy Management for social equity fund revenues, develop criteria for an applicant's workforce development and social equity plans. One of the things that I liked that I heard Louis say, or maybe I read it, was that he has been working with students, right? And so that's those are the kinds of things that we are looking for in terms of the a workforce development plan. This all sounds pretty complicated, a lot of moving yes. parts. You've, you've mentioned yes. this very tight timeline. As chair of the Social Equity Council, this is a, you were newly named by the governor. Are you worried that you'll be able to accomplish all this so that this market will be up and running by sometime in 2022, Andrea? I don't know if I would say worried. I mean, it's definitely we have a sense of urgency, right? We want to be able to meet this deadline in large part because the war on drugs has been decades long and the the impact that it has had on black and brown communities can easily be can easily be recognized, right? And if you look at the incarceration rates, it is disproportionately impacting black and brown people. So we know that there there is an urgency around getting this work done. But you know, to your point, it is it is a lot of work. But I am I am thrilled that we have the council members that we do. They are passionate and they are committed. And we're all just gonna, you know, put our heads together and put our heads down and and, and get this done.
if you have questions about the recreational uh, marijuana uh, program and how this will roll out in our state, again, you're hearing Andrea Comer, who's the interim deputy commissioner of the Department of Consumer Protection. She's chair of the Social Equity Council. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I should stress this is the adult use uh, recreational uh, marijuana uh, program. Um, Andrea, before I go back to Luis, just to get his thoughts um, again on this process, I understand these licenses are pretty costly. And so when we think about um, helping people who live in communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, you know, how will they get into this business? It's one of the things that we, I think, will be the, the, the biggest challenge, right, is getting the getting the access to, to capital for some of these folks who are looking to, to get into the cannabis business. Um, the good news is we have Treasurer Wooden who is on, who is on the council. We have um, Ed Shirley from Fairview Capital Partners who's on the council. And, my, and David Lehman, who is our commissioner of the Department of Economic and Community Development. My hope is that their experiences and their relationships will help um, break down the break down some of those barriers to accessing capital so that the people who want to enter this business, whether it is through a cultivator or a distributor, they are able to do so. Um, I know that there that Commissioner Layman has been thinking a lot about what this might look like. And again, I think with the folks we have on the council, um, it will make that I won't say make that process easy, but at least we have some um, subject matter experts, if you will, to to help us think about what that might look like. Mm. Luis Vega is still with us, CEO of WEPA Farms. He's a licensed hemp farmer in our state. Luis, you know, how do you respond? Uh, something Andrea said earlier, you know, the whole point of this council is to make sure that uh, this uh, industry in our state does not become dominated by um, out-of-state companies. What we've seen in other states who have legalized uh, recreational marijuana. I mean, what are your concerns? The state's already dominated by multi-state operators. We have Cura Leaf, who has a quarter of the a quarter of the medical marijuana agent, a uh, quarter of the medical marijuana business. Currently, one grow facility and four um, dispensaries, with eighteen or nineteen dispensaries in the state. That's a quarter, just about, with the one of four grow facilities. Then we can look at Acreage, who has the Botanist, which is now rebranding over the next couple of months. They have three dispensaries as well as connections to one of the grow facilities. So as we start to say, is this going to happen? It's kind of already happened. Um, now we're leaving it to chance and we're leaving it to chance with a lottery system in honesty. But that's what was put in. And once again, it's still that roll of dice. I went through the agricultural hemp program. I was able to procure and purchase all the equipment that I would need to move forward. I did that as an individual going through it myself without rich parents or some type of other leg up coming from, I'm from East New York, Brooklyn. You know what I mean? I can go to an interview at McDonald's and I will get denied for the job because I was arrested for cultivating cannabis but I can start a business here in the state of Connecticut, which was most recently valued at, at enough that it needs to do with. 
Well, Louise, we're having trouble hearing you. Uh, Andrea, um, let's let's t respond to what Louise had Capitals shared about seeing me around the Capitol. Oh. I'm a, one of those pretty vocal guys that's out there as well. And now I'm chancing it on the roll of a dice. Mm. It uh, sounds Louise, silly. Louise, but, can you hear but me? That's the actual way it's going right now. The price points. I wanna... Realistically, I believe that it was a fair. It, it, the price points are the price points. We'll see those similar price points throughout the country. The state did what they could. Access to, as as Andrea said, there are some powerhouses, um, powerhouses on finance that are racking their brains and finding where finances are going to come from. Funds are available. Private funds are heavily available. Um, joining affinity groups. I'm a member of the Minority Cannabis Business Association. I'm a member of the U.S. Hemp Builders Association. I'm a member of the Connecticut Hemp Industry Association. I made sure to join those affiliate groups. I'm also a member of the Chamber of Commerce in four different towns in Connecticut. I pay taxes and I employ 15 people. All right. And I can't get a job in McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Uh, Luis, I wanted, Luis, I wanted those, to take some, I want to take a caller that, that, um, right now. And, and so we're going to go to Anthony in Manchester. I think Luis is having a hard time uh, hearing me on the connection. But Anthony, go ahead with your question. Uh, I, I, I think my question is a little off your subject. I just had a question about the, uh, the way the state was going to tax recreational marijuana. I heard it was going to be on a sliding scale based on THC counts. Is there any truth to that? Mm -hmm. Uh, we have the, the interim uh, deputy commissioner of the Department of Consumer Protection, Andrea Comer, who might be able to answer your question, Anthony. Andrea? Yes, I actually, I wish I could. I do not have the, I do not know the specifics around how um, recreational marijuana will be, will be taxed. Um, but I can certainly try and get that, that answer for you. All right, Anthony, we're going to have the call screener um, hopefully jot down your phone number and we'll reach out to you after the show just to get your contact information and send that along to Andrea. Let me know. I don't mean to cut off Luis, but he was having trouble like, hearing me on the Zoom connection. But, you know, because you are with uh, the Department of Consumer Protection, Andrea, we did get a, a comment um, from a listener who just had a question about the medical marijuana program. Um, mm -hmm this person writing that their family member was diagnosed last year with cancer that required aggressive chemotherapy, but also put the relative in the market for medical marijuana at the same time uh, because he's being treated very vulnerable to infection. And it turned out that you can't get a medical marijuana prescription from the doctor or doctors who treat you. Instead, this relative had to go to what he described as an odd little medical office. There was no doctor there. He was handed the phone. And um, after speaking with this person, he was able to get his medical marijuana card. And the listener writes, the system seems to be less than ideal and wants to know if any reforms are being contemplated. Well, I, so I... I'm I'm surprised that that was the experience um, because I believe that most when you get a medical marijuana card you can get it prescribed by by a physician. Um, I'm sure that the medical marijuana um, process is going to be reviewed in tandem with uh, the recreational marijuana process being stood up, and so hearing stories like that are certainly helpful in terms of informing any reforms that should be that should be taken well that's good to hear oh. that the, the process is being uh, looked at uh, Luis can you hear us now 
I, I can. I apologize. It had, it had changed itself. Um, so currently in the state, the doctor, the physician has to register as a medical marijuana provider. Um, so there's a lot that have chosen not to. And then there has been small practices that have popped up um, that specialize in that portion where they bring on a certifier and they're able to go through a secondary uh, process. Getting a medical marijuana card here in the state of Connecticut, it has become difficult for some people, uh, especially depending on their geographic location. When I was a patient, I had to go to my doctor, as, as I'm a patient, when I first started, I had to go to my doctor get all my paperwork, then take my diagnosis to a secondary certifier. So this was, <clears throat> so now this was a payment to my doctor that wasn't, that wasn't included in the medical marijuana side. So then I had to take my paperwork from my doctor, go to a secondary provider, very similar to the way that this, this listener described, go through that process. It actually took a whole bunch of time. Um, and, and I, and then I wasn't able to really do too much for about a month. Um, it's a process that's growing. And I'm very happy that Andrea is now part of it. And Andrea seems very cooperative and very willing to listen to everybody that's out there in the past. That hasn't been um, that it's been a little tougher communicating with the Department of Consumer Protection. Um, and, and Luis, I wanted, Luis, I wanted to take one more listener call before we run out of time. Tom's calling in from Hartford. Go ahead, Tom. Hi. My, um, so I'm calling because recently, and I don't even know if this is legal for the, for the department to do, but we in Connecticut um, are forced to buy marijuana under, uh, like, pseudonyms. So something will be called Saradin. And we had a website called Terp Street. And you went to that site and you put in the Connecticut name and you got the street name. Now, this is like very important for us because if you look up online, you can tell the different medicinal purposes and the tri all the information you need to know is online. And now we are having problems translating what our medication really is. I think the DCP said something like it's not appropriate for medicine, but you're basically giving us pills that don't have names to them, and we can't figure out what they're called anymore. And I want to know the DCP's official stance on this and if this is going to change anytime soon because it's a really, really bad policy, in my opinion. Andrea, can you respond to Tom? Sure. So the, the legislation as it was written, you cannot have um, – marijuana that is that has a, a street name and this is intended to prevent um to prevent particularly young people but from from getting access to the wrong getting access to the to the to the wrong med medication or the wrong cannabis so and i certainly understand you know the the pivot may have been a challenge i know that there was in there was an article around this um, but some of the pushback that we had when in terms of legalizing recreational marijuana was the concerns about it being appealing to young people. And so a name could could very well do that. And so that was we, what we were trying to solve for. Um, so I understand that it can be it, it can be a frustrating process to now have this 
to Man. not be able to name things the the way that they are, but we we also had to be mindful of the concerns that were raised around street names and how that might draw the attention of folks we do not want to get into get into marijuana, particularly young people. Well, Andre, Luis, we're going to have to end pretty soon. Go ahead quickly. I apologize. Um, just real quick, Andrea, just a quick question. If you're, you call them street names, as an agriculturalist, those are cultivars. So now if the cultivar is registered by a Department of Agriculture or a medical program or those use program as a cultivar, that's not a street name. That's the actual cultivar of this plant. We call big boy tomatoes because they're big boy tomatoes. That's the cultivar. We don't just call all tomatoes tomatoes. You know what I mean? So this is where I guess the conversation I would love to have at some point, because when I bring in my seeds, I have to name the cultivar and the cultivar is this. You know what I mean? So it's not a street name. It's actually the cultivar, the registered name of the plant. Well, Luis, go ahead, Andre. Did you want to just respond quickly? Yes, sure. No, and I and I appreciate that. And again, you know, I, I think communication and conversations is definitely the way to try and figure out, you know, what are we missing? What are we trying to solve for? How can we make this this burgeoning industry one that is not that achieves what we want it to do, right? Particularly from an equity perspective, but also that encourage the encourages the continuing growth of the industry. Well, I think we'll have another conversation uh, coming up uh, soon, but we want to thank Andrea Comer for coming on today, Interim Deputy Commissioner at the Department of Consumer Protection, also Chair of the Social Equity Council, and Luis Vega, CEO of Huepa Farms. He's a licensed hemp farmer interstate. We thank you for your time. Now, coming up, we wanted to talk more about what science knows, what the researchers have found about uh, marijuana plants and people who use marijuana for certain medical conditions. That conversation coming up. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. As we just heard, there's a lot of questions still about adult use recreational marijuana in our state. But Connecticut has permitted medical marijuana since 2013, that law passing in 2012. We want to talk more about the science behind marijuana, how it affects people. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Rebecca Kraft. She's professor at Washington State University. She specializes in psychopharmacology. Rebecca, welcome to our show. Good morning. So we talked uh, just briefly on today's show, but uh, we've done many shows about the criminalization of marijuana in our country and the history there. Can we talk about um, when medical marijuana, what opinions changed and we started to see states and you know some medical providers even embracing the fact that this plant can help treat certain conditions? Yeah, I mean, I live out here in the state of Washington. We had our medical marijuana initiative approved by voters back in 1998. So I think we were the second or third state um, after California in 1996. So, uh, and we've approved um, uh, recreational marijuana in 2012. So I certainly appreciate the discussion of the, the difficulties of kind of navigating the quality control and the licensing and all of that. 
Um, I do think we're, we've gotten to the tipping point nationally of uh, consideration of cannabis as a medicine and also its approval as a legal recreational substance. And I think it's very widely recognized by many Americans at this point to certainly have a lot of potential as a medicine, but also to be relatively benign as a recreational drug compared to other legal substances such as alcohol. So tell us about some of the the conditions that cannabis has used uh, to help treat symptoms. I'm looking at a list uh, here in Connecticut, and it's a long list of medical conditions for adults that can get a medical marijuana card, and then for those patients under 18. Yeah, I think it's important to note that, unfortunately, the science lags far, far behind the, the legal status of medical cannabis at this point. And so if you look at the recent scientific reviews of the evidence of efficacy for cannabis or specific cannabinoid drugs, uh, there's there's clear evidence that Epidiolex, which is the FDA-approved CBD medication, is effective for uh, seizure disorders in children and it's approved for two specific, very severe seizure disorders. But as far as CBD goes, there there's no other uh, recognition of its effectiveness against, I would say, anything in the scientific community other than some, I guess I would say, um, limited recognition that it may be useful for anxiety but all the other applications for which people are using CBD currently, it's based on very little science. And that doesn't mean that it won't be found to be useful for many other uh, medical phenomena, but the science just isn't there. We, We know a lot more about THC's effects and it clearly does have some positive effect on pain in some people. But I would argue that the science shows that THC is very limited in its efficacy for pain for most people. So on average, it probably only reduces pain about 10%. You mentioned uh, we're at a tipping point when we see how uh, states uh, are addressing the legal question. And so do you anticipate that there'll be more research about uh, cannabis and, and how it relates to people and the conditions they have, Rebecca? Oh, sure. The federal government is currently funding a tr- probably more research on cannabis than they have ever funded before. And there are also many, many pieces of legislation being introduced in the federal, at the federal level to make it more, you know, more easy for researchers to investigate various medical applications of cannabis, as well as to look at possible repercussions of, of, you know, federal legalization of recreational use. I understand in your research, you focus on the sex differences of how cannabis affects uh, uh, males and females. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we have focused on the pain relieving effects of primarily THC 
We've done a little bit of work with CBD. And what we find is that in many of our pain tests in rodents, the females are more sensitive to THC than the males. So in, in rats, you only need about half as much THC to produce a pain relieving effect in females compared to males. And we found that this is because females metabolize THC a little differently than males do. They make a lot of the primary active metabolite of THC. It's called 11-hydroxy-THC. And this metabolite acts just like THC, binds to the same sites in the nervous system and produces pain relief the same way that THC does. Males, in contrast, make very little of this active metabolite. And they. this seems to explain in part their lesser analgesic response to THC or the fact that they need more THC to produce the same effect. As uh, more states uh, legalize uh, marijuana for recreational adult use, what are your concerns and, and when you look at your research and how it's being used? Well, I can tell you that in the state of Washington and in many other states, one of the big concerns is driving under the influence of cannabis, you know, whether it's you're using medically or recreationally. The state of Washington has been tracking alcohol versus cannabis related deaths and uh, accidents in the state since we've legalized for medical and then also recreational. And Although there was not a significant uptick in cannabis-only related deaths, there has been an increase in alcohol plus cannabis-related traffic fatalities. So it appears that some people, once cannabis became legal in our state, are combining it with alcohol. Cannabis is not as impairing as alcohol is when you're driving, but it is impairing and the two drugs have an additive effect. So if you're using both of them, you're even more likely to be in an accident than if you're just using one or the other. Mm. Well, we know some listeners have used marijuana and they know how it impacts them. There may be others who've, who've never used marijuana. And so when we think about um, the health risks attached to this at all, and what does, what do, what does science know? Well, I, I did want to mention that one fact that I think a lot of people are not aware of. So CBD, of course, is very widely available in all sorts of formulations. And so a lot of people are trying it. It's, it's to my mind, fairly innocuous. So if you were interested in trying it to see if it would work for uh, pain or anything else, it's probably not going to harm you. But it does interfere with the metabolism of many, many human medicines. So if you're going to try CBD, um, it's very important to discuss the use of it with your healthcare provider. They can check to see whether CBD interferes with the metabolism of the other medications that you might be using. Um, there's only a few cases that I know of in which you could end up with dangerously high levels of your other medications if you're using CBD along with them. 
Mm-hmm. A part of the Connecticut rollout of adult use recreational marijuana, eventually uh, people will be able to have um, so many plants uh, in their home. And so for those who are listening who might be wondering, you know, where is it safest for me uh, to purchase uh, a cannabis for use? Uh, is it a, a licensed dispensary is the way to go? Uh, I would certainly say so in the state of Washington, <laughs> in part because, you know, the, the benefit to the general public of having even state level regulation, you know, much less federal, is that you have the potential to get have really good quality control on your product. So uh, all the states that I'm aware of are making valiant efforts to um screen for heavy metals and pesticides and also to get accurate labeling on the products and also to consider potential downsides, say, of really high concentration products, which is something that we've been discussing here in the state of Washington. So I, I think that it's not always the case, but you at least have a reasonable shot at good quality control when you're buying through a dispensary. Well, I want to thank Dr. Rebecca Kraft for joining us again. She's a professor at Washington State University. She specializes in psychopharmacology. Rebecca, a lot more conversations about uh, marijuana cannabis uh, coming up, and we appreciate your time uh, talking with us today. Thank you. Today's show, produced by Tess Terrible. Cat Pastor is our technical producer. Carmen Baskoff is on the phones today. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about how colleges uh, should address the mental health needs of their students as so many college students are coming back to campus. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.